I have an old study on CEOs, and I found some very interesting things they say. What they found was introverts make much better CEOs than extroverts. But the only problem is extroverts interview a lot better, right? So the extrovert is big and takes control and you're like, wow, this guy be so awesome. And then they stink as an actual CEO. The introvert's bumbling and stumbling and like, oh, I think we can hire him. When he's actually would be a really great CEO. They found zero correlation between good CEOs and Ivy League educations. It didn't matter if you went to Harvard. That wasn't the way to become a great CEO. You could go to Rogue Community College and be a great CEO. <laughs> and then the coolest part was half of the really great CEOs had a major blunder on their resume, like driving their previous company into bankruptcy or something, like big time mistake. And they were the ones that became the best CEOs. You read that and you think, man, I'm a perfect candidate. I have never gone to Harvard. I am a terrible interviewer. I've blown it big time. Apple, here I am, man. I'll take $200 million a year. <laughs> Could it be that those that have blown it have a Thomas Edison attitude? He's the guy that invented the light bulb, but it took him a long time. And so a reporter once asked him, as he was working on the invention of a light bulb, they said, is it true, Mr. Edison, that you have failed a thousand times in trying to invent a light bulb? And he quickly and brilliantly replied, oh no, I haven't failed a thousand times. I found a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. There's a certain way to see failure. And chapter nine is a reboot. Chapters one through eight, kind of a failure, right? We've seen that, we've gone through that, we've stepped through it. Failure, failure, big failure, flood. And then now chapter nine is the reboot with a new CEO, it's Noah. And Noah in chapter eight, if you remember from last Wednesday, Noah, the very first thing he does when he gets off the ark after the flood is he makes an altar and he worships Yahweh. Every reboot in our life should begin just like that. If you feel like you've failed and done something, man, every reboot should begin with praise, putting God back into the right position in your life. Because very often our failures come from inordinate loves, where we have disordered love. Something has displaced God in our life, and that ultimately is what leads to a lot of mistakes and failure. So Noah, step one in this reboot is, let's get God where he belongs. Number one, praising him. And then chapter nine begins, the reboot. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. For your life's blood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Reboot. It's the same, but it's different. You see some similarities, really, to the first time creation is made, but there have been some changes because it's never the same. Life never stays the same. And if you notice in verse one, God blesses Noah, and this is the blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Have we heard that before? Chapter one, verse 28. What was left out, though? In chapter one, verse 28, to Adam and Eve, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew there is literally kibosh. Put the kibosh on something. Now the kibosh is not added in here. Why? Because what Adam and Eve were to put the kibosh on was the serpent that showed up in chapter three. And guess what they did not do? put the kibosh on him. They lost, the fall happens, everything from it, right? And so the promise is now, you guys can't do it. The promise is Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head and he will bruise its heel. It's been changed now. Humans, you can't do it. Now, there's someone else the promised Messiah is the only one that will be able to subdue the enemy. Things have changed for Adam, or for Noah, I mean. Things have changed. The reboot, but it's different. And then, verse two, the fear of you and dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens. In the garden, what you saw is the animals just make a parade in front of Adam, and Adam names them. There's no dread, there's no fear. In the garden, verse 29 of chapter one tells us they were vegan. They just ate of the plants and of the fruit of the trees. They didn't eat animals. Now it's changed. Now the animals are going to fear us. Maybe it's because we will eat them. Probably part of the problem, right? but we're gonna have fear of animals. My favorite story of this happened a long time ago, a school of ministry. 
We were hiking up the Rogue River. Uh, Jim Wright decided that we're gonna hike the Rogue River Trail, but instead of hiking downriver where every day you're going down, we started at the bottom and hiked up because that's the way Jim likes it. Make it hard for the people. Are you kidding? Who are we? We're the school of ministry, go uphill all the time. So that's what we did. So we made it uphill two days and uh, third day we're at this spot where they had all these warnings around about bears. And there was this one guy, his name is Matt Nicastro, 18 year old, grew up in LA, city boy, city boy, just 100% city boy. He was afraid of everything like rattlesnakes, mountain lions, bears, you know, just things that were like, dude, don't worry about a mountain lion. I've never seen it. You're not, don't worry about it. But to him, it's like mountain lions. So we were there and he's like, bro, do you mind if I camp with you tonight? I'm like, sure. And I had this kind of tarp set up because it was just drizzling a little bit. And we were tucked underneath this tarp and go to sleep. 5.30 in the morning, he starts punching me. Matt, what? There's a bear. I'm like, no, there's not. Go to bed, dude. He's like, no, seriously, there's a bear in our tent. I'm like, what? I open my eye right at my feet. There's this little black bear sniffing at my sleeping bag. Like, boy, that stinks, All right? Just right there. He's like, what do we do? For some reason, to this day, I don't know why I did this. I looked at the bear. I said, go home, bear, go home. The bear like looked at me and then ran away. <laughs> Matt's like, can you do that? I said, oh yeah, they're trained. <laughs> what was sad was a year later, he's camping and he was mauled and killed by a bear. I'm kidding, come on. That's so easy. <laughs> the relationship that was there with Adam and Eve, with the animals and this, this cooperation with nature and this beauty, this incredibleness, fractured now. Now there's dread and fear. George Whitfield once said this. He said, do you notice when you walk by the dog, it growls at you? You walk under the tree and the bird screeches at you. You walk near the deer and it runs away from you. Do you know why? Because all creation knows you've quarreled with their master. I like that. That's chapter nine. Things have changed. Oh, reboot. Some are the same. You can bless, can't subdue. And now the animal kingdom, we're in a quarrel. And then in verse four, God says this. You can eat anything you want, but do not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. Links these two things together. It's life and it's blood. So in chapter one, verse 29, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were vegan. They just ate plants. It appears that it was vegan all the way up to chapter nine. And then in chapter nine, God says, okay, from now on, you guys can have steak. Praise God for chapter nine. You can have hamburgers, which we just ate. Praise God. But there's something about not eating an animal with its life, that is its blood. So does that mean we can't have a steak rare? Is that what this means? There's a guy named Sarna. He is my favorite Genesis commentator. 
Brilliant. It's, it's the only, I don't usually, I read commentaries, get everything I want of them, take pictures of the stuff I like, copy out the notes, and then I just, I get rid of them. Because I don't really reread them. So Sarna's commentary on Genesis is such a beautiful book, I kept it. Just a brilliant commentary. This is what he says there. He says, what it means is you're not allowed to eat an animal while it's still alive. You can't like hack the leg off a cow and then be eating the cow leg while the animal's standing there. Hey, you've got four legs, now you got three, and I'm eating it. You can't like kill an animal and as it's dying, take its blood and like drink it or something. Right? That are things that pagans would do. So I tend to agree with that. That there's a certain respect that we are to have for the life of an animal that's giving its life for us to have life. There's a certain respect we're supposed to have, right? So I will eat anything. Like, I'll try anything once. If I don't like it, I'll tell you, and I won't eat it again. So I've been to China and I've been to Taiwan where they eat interesting things. Went to lunch in China and we went to this little place and we walked in, I noticed that there was this bowl and it was like this really cool looking brass bowl and it was full of cicada beetles. Do you know what a cicada beetle is? It's, they sound like electricity, right? They're really, they actually make a 104 decibel sound. They are loud, right? So I'm in there, they're talking over there and I see this bowl and I'm kind of looking at it and there's about a hundred in it and I thought they were dead. So I went over to it and I just kind of kicked the bowl. They were not dead. And all of them started to make their 104 decibel sound. It was like, plug your ears. Every person in that restaurant looked at me like, what is that white dude doing? He needs to stop, right? Well, they must have assumed that that's what I wanted to eat because when my plate came, it was a bowl of 30 deep fried cicada beetles the most delicious thing I've ever eaten. I am telling you, I would eat them again. They were tasty, right? Then go to Taiwan and we go to this very nice restaurant. And in this restaurant, when you walked in, it felt like you're walking into a pet store because it was cages of live animals and then aquariums of these just exotic fish. So it was really, it was trying to prove, hey, the food that you're eating it is fresh, right? That's the whole point. So there's this massive saltwater aquarium and there was this, I call them from Vanuatu, a new Caledonian crab. And what they are is they're like 18, 20 inches long and they look like a shrimp. They're just massive. I'm like, whoa, we used to hunt these. And so I'm like fascinated with that. We go sit down, guess what I got? Out came that giant shrimp thing and it was on this beautiful piece of ice. It was laid over the piece of ice. Its back was all opened up, its tail all the way down. The meat on it had been cut up so you could grab it with chopsticks, but here was the problem. It was still alive. Yes, so you are grabbing a piece of it and it's literally got its antenna on it like, please don't, please don't, uh, uh, right? I just felt like this is wrong. Thank you that it's fresh, but this is wrong. It's wrong to do that kind of stuff to animals. I think that's what God's saying here. Like, like, don't do that. Don't be 
pagan, weird in the way that you're going to eat the animals that I'm giving to you for food now, all right? Change. And then human life. Whoever, verse five, sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God, for the first time, says human life is of infinite value. Remember what got us into all the trouble of the flood. Cain murders Abel. And then this guy named Lamech, who I call Lamo, decides, well, if he got away with it, I'm gonna murder people. And if anyone touches me, if anyone tries to get back at me, I'm gonna kill 77 of you. And Lamo is the first guy that starts to build cities, the first guy that's a polygamist, the first guy that's just a mass murderer. He actually writes a song about his murder. He's a terrible individual. He's collecting power and collecting women and collecting wealth. And he begins to believe, because I have women and because I have power and because I have wealth, my life is now more important than anyone else's life. Has that ever happened in history? Who's this book of Genesis to? A group of mud, brick, baking slaves who Pharaoh had said, your babies are worthless, and we're gonna kill them and throw them into the river. They're valueless. So God is changing it all right here. No way, no way. Humans and human life does not roll on a sliding scale. That somehow if you accumulate money or power or wealth or education, then somehow your money, your, your life is worth more. No way. All life, God says, is of infinite value. It's like this. This is the best illustration I have. I went and got one of these today. You know what this is right here? This is a $100 bill. I had to borrow it. <laughs> Would anyone want this nice, crisp $100 bill? All right. How about if I took this $100 bill and I crumpled it all up? So it's not so nice looking anymore. Do you still want the crumpled up $100 bill? How about if I took it and I stepped on it and I've got chickens and chickens do what chickens do and some of that do is on my shoe. Do you still want the $100 bill? Yeah. How about if I spit on it? Would you still want the $100 bill? Yes, why? I'm keeping it. <laughs> why? Condition does not change the value. When God says, all humans are valuable to me, what he's saying is condition does not change the value. I assign value to humanity. And there is no sliding scale. There's not Pharaoh's life is worth more than a baby's life. Uh-uh. All life has value to me. So valuable that life has to be paid with life. Now this should set up a category in our head right now. 
a hint of where the story is going. That life is so valuable that the only thing that can pay for life is a life. Shouldn't that set up a category in our head of where the story just might be headed right now? You get that that early. Page nine, you're already getting a very clear view of what God is going to do. That the only way that that humans can be redeemed from our violence and our greed and our insanity is with a life. It's the only way. And so God says, with this reboot, I've got a new covenant. Check it out. Then God said to Noah, verse eight, and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is a unilateral covenant by God. God says, I'm keeping it. It's not dependent on anyone else. It's everlasting, it's universal, it's to every single human being, no more floods. But he also says something else. Notice verse 10. And with every living creature, notice verse 12. And every living creature, notice verse 15. And every living creature of all flesh, in verse 16. And every living creature of all flesh, and verse 17, and all flesh that is on the earth. The animals are included in this covenant. It is the only covenant in the Bible that God makes with animals, with all living beings. Does God love animals? When God makes them day five, day six, what does God say? It's good. He loves the squid and the octopus and the kangaroo, and the salmon, and the trees. God loves them, right? Creation right now is under our curse. We have harmed creation. Do you know that? Read Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Paul talks all about it. Because of us, because of vanity put in us, all this kind of stuff. It says all of creation 
How much is all of creation? All of creation groans and travails like childbirth, waiting for the unveiling of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for us to get back to where we're supposed to be as the rightful image bearers of God. All of creation waits for that. Listen to Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before Yahweh, for he comes and he comes to judge the earth. Did you hear that? how that encompasses all of creation. Like, when is that gonna take place? When you and I take our rightful place as a royal priesthood with our high King Jesus. It says the trees will sing with joy. Is that literal or is that hyperbole? Like, can trees actually sing are they being hindered right now by us? But could trees actually sing? Listen to Revelation. So this is last book. Revelation and Genesis, you probably already know this, have a lot of tie-ins. So listen to this. This is this heavenly scene, chapter five. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and all that is in them saying. Who's saying this? Every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and in the sea. Saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb for blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Maybe C.S. Lewis. And J.R.R. Tolkien are right. And there's coming a time that the creatures right now, creation is groaning and travailing for because right now we're hindering them and not letting them do it. Like eventually I think everything becomes a really good Disney movie where all the animals sing. And one day that's coming for us. One day it's back. And what's the sign of this covenant that God makes with all of creation because he loves it all? What's the sign? because there's always a sign for a covenant. Abraham's given circumcision. Israel's given the Sabbath day. You and I are given baptism and communion, signs. So what's the sign of this covenant? It's a rainbow. So God says, the sign of this covenant, he says it multiple times, is a bow. That I have a better solution than flooding the earth and killing everybody, I've got a better solution. This is very important to get because I think there lurks in our minds even to this day that if we could only get rid of the bad people, then everything would be okay. If we could just get rid of ISIS or terrorists or racists or Putin or my rude boss or my bad neighbor or a new regime in America, then everything would be better. 
Isn't that the flood? When 99.9999999% of humanity is wiped out and there's only eight people that are saved, the good people? And what happens? We'll see at the end of chapter nine, it didn't work. They brought a brokenness with them, right? So what God is saying is, listen, listen, there's a new covenant and it's my bow. The word bow is the Hebrew word kashet. It is used 70 times and it's always a weapon. It's a bow and arrow. That's literally what this is. There is no difference. There's not a different word. It is bow, not rainbow. It's I set my bow in the heavens. I hung up my weapon of destruction. That's what God is saying right here. And C.H. Spurgeon, that brilliant preacher, said this 150 years ago. He said, notice which way the bow points. Is it God pointing down at earth? I'll get you. No, the bow, it points up. This is the covenant. It's not destruction. It's all the arrows from my wickedness and our wickedness are heaven bound. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah said it. It's Isaiah 53. One of the suffering servant songs that are just blow your mind brilliant. 700 years before Jesus. Listen to this. I'll just read verse five and six. But he was pierced for our transgressions. What do arrows do? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which direction does the bow point? To heaven. Because God the Son says, I'll pay for the gossip. I'll pay for the lies. I'll pay for the anger. I'll pay for the envy. I'll pay for your selfishness and your violence and your hatred and your bullying and your addiction. I'll pay for it, right? How amazing is that? It's the only solution that will stop this cycle that we're gonna see repeated until the gospel of the kingdom. That's the only solution. It's the bow. Do you know when you see the rainbow again in the Bible? It's Revelation 4. It says around God's throne, there was a rainbow that circled God's throne. Why is it there? Because revelation is the end of times. And the rainbow is saying, look, I kept my promise. I have not destroyed the earth again by the flood. The rainbow is there because it's reminding God keeps his promises. But also, you know why the rainbow is there at the end of times? Because revelation is a storm, a massive storm. And what do you see after the storm goes away? A rainbow around God's throne. No matter what storm I'm in, no matter what storm you're in, if you want peace, if you want the rainbow of peace, just remember God's on the throne. God's in control. Nothing is surprising him. He has a plan and he's going to work it to perfection. Ephesians 1 verse 10. 
That's God. I don't care if it's revelation proportions of a storm. Never forget God's on the throne. Isaiah the prophet put it like this. He will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. Keep reminding yourself God is on the throne. Do you know what God's throne is called in the Bible? It has a name. It's Hebrews 4 verse 16. It's called the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace. Because when you come to God, he's not gonna flood you out. He's not gonna fill you with arrows. If you come to God, Hebrews 4, 16 says, you'll receive help in your time of need. In your storm, the bow still's there. In your storm, you get help from him. And then lastly, aren't rainbows beautiful? Jonathan Edwards said this. He said, you can tell a nominal Christian be, be and a true Christian by this one thing. Nominal Christians find God useful. God, get me a wife. God, get me a life. God, get me a job. God, get me money. God, get me out of jail, right? God becomes useful. It's really paganism. I do this for you, God. I'll pray, I'll read my Bible, and then you give me something. He says, true Christians find God beautiful. That his grace and his mercy and the story of Jesus is beautiful. And that your goal is not to get something from God. Your goal is God. I just want him. I want his presence. I want to know him. That's the change. This is the covenant. God makes it with Noah. I'm hanging it up. Not gonna do this again. Now you would think, yes, reboot. All right. But read the end of the chapter. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered their, the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. There's no happily ever after, not yet. You read this story and you're like, man, what in the world? What we're seeing is a repetition of the previous story, isn't it? The reboot looks exactly the same. 
In chapter one, God's spirit hovers over the chaotic waters and out of the chaotic waters come order and land. What happens after the flood? A dove is released. Symbol of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The dove hovers over the waters and out of the waters come land. And then God blesses Adam and Eve in the garden. What does God do at the beginning of this chapter? He blesses Noah and his sons, right? But then there's a fall and then Noah curses someone. It's just the same cycle repeated right here. And here's what's so sad to me. Noah, if you look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, gets the most words. He's the one guy that stands out as a hero. Like everyone else is like, eh, hmm. Or they get very few words and we don't know what happened to him, right? Enoch, well, okay, but he disappears. Noah is the big hero in the first 11 chapters, right? Wow. And yet, and yet, his end is such a bummer. He ends up drunk and naked in his tent. We can think that certain families are perfect and amazing and incredible. All that means is they're really good at keeping the tent flaps closed because they're sin in every tent. Doesn't matter how much of a hero you think someone is, no matter how high of a pedestal you put on them, all it means is they know how to keep their tent flaps closed. That's all it means. So you can't look in there and see drunk, naked people. That's all it means, <laughs> right? I'm dead serious on that. Every hero is like this in the Bible. The lesson of Noah is this, right? He retires, starts to kick back, and then he ends up failing greatly. You and I have to learn to run through the tape. Paul said, I finished my course with joy. It doesn't matter if I've been faithful for 100 years, or 100 months, or 100 weeks, or 100 days. Every day I got to wake up and say, God, help me to be faithful today. I don't want my image tarnished. Help me, empower me to run well today. One in 10 in the Bible finish strong. 10%, that's it. I just keep saying, Lord, help me to be in the 10%. Help me to be in that 10%. Please help me, right? And my alarm in my own head is this. It's when I say this about the things of the Lord, when I say, oh, I used to do that. That's an alarm in my head. I used to read my Bible. I used to pray. I used to serve. I used to be on mission. I used to, uh-oh. That should be an alarm for every single one of us. Have I retired like Noah? Because he used to be on, man. He was the man, preached righteous for 100 years. And he becomes a man of the soil, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and something weird happens. Be careful when you start saying, I used to a lot. I want to be saying, this is what I am doing. If you feel right now like, oh, I do a lot I used to. Jesus has the divine cure. It's Revelation chapter two. He talks to an entire church, the church at Ephesus, one of the most brilliant churches in the Bible. But he says this, I've got one thing against you. You've left your first love. So Jesus says, remember from where you've fallen. God didn't move away from me. God didn't move away from you. God didn't move away from Ephesus. They fell away. 
Remember from where you fell. Repent. God, something's happened to my heart. Something's happened to me. Repent. And then number three, redo your first works again. The things that you were doing when you were passionate about Jesus, what were you doing? Start there. Redo those first things again. It's the divine cure from our high physician. Get back to doing those things. That's what we're supposed to do, right? So Noah blows it. What happened here? No one knows. The word nakedness, you can look at it. It has really bad connotations in the Bible, usually sexual in nature. So that leads people down this kind of rabbit hole, like uh, maybe something worse happened. Maybe Canaan did something because he's the dude that gets cursed, the grandson of Noah. No one knows. In the Old Testament, it was not a sin to get drunk. It was dumb. Over and over, the Proverbs like, don't be stupid, don't get drunk. But there's never a command, you cannot get drunk. New Testament, there is a command, do not be drunk with wine. Old Testament, there's not that law. Stupid, I think Noah would agree, man, that was stupid. But it's not a law. So what happened here? No one knows. What's the point of this story? Here's the point. Here's what changes in the reboot. You have in chapter three, Eve tempted to sin. She eats of the fruit, talks to Adam, gives to Adam. Adam is tempted as well. He eats of the fruit and both of them are cursed. In the reboot here, one son blows it, Ham. Takes his blow it, goes to his two brothers. Hey guys, come over here, check out dad's nakedness, whatever it means. Come over here, check it out. They say no. They do not participate in the temptation. They resist it. They walk backwards, cover their dad, and then it says they get blessed. Wow. That's the difference. We're getting something set up in our head that if you want blessing, don't participate in junk. Pretty simple. There's temptations coming for all of us. Adam, Eve, Ham, Shem, Japheth, it's coming for you. Don't participate. Don't participate in the junk. Don't go look at the nakedness. Don't do it. And there's a blessing that comes in that. There's a curse if you do, there's a blessing if you don't, if you say, I will not participate in that. It's simple. There's a guy I was working with a couple years ago. Actually, it was a long time ago. His name was James. We were over at Fruitdale and it was a Sunday morning and he came in late and I could see as he walked in the back, he just stood in the back of Fruitdale, that he had, he looked rough. So after service, I said, James, what happened to you? He had this just gigantic black eye. I swollen shut everything. This is what he said to me. He says, Matt, pray for me. Satan's attacking me. I said, okay. When did Satan attack you? Uh, Saturday. I said, what time Saturday did Satan attack you? Ah, uh, it's about midnight. Okay. Where were you at when Satan attacked you? Uh, I was outside the Wonderbluter bar. 
What were you doing when Satan attacked you? I picked up on a dude's girlfriend and he punched me. I said, bro, that's not Satan, that's stupid. I said, I am never worried about being attacked by Satan like that. You know why? I don't participate in that kind of stuff. You don't have to participate in that kind of stuff. You won't come black and blue and you'll be blessed. The message we're getting on the reboot where we're starting to get additions to this story, to this cycle is be like Shem and Japheth and do not participate in wickedness and you'll be blessed. And that still holds true to this day. Still holds true. Go to the Wonder Blur. Is it still open? I think it shut down, didn't it? Huh? <laughs> They're reopening it. Oh, well, darn it. <laughs> Don't go to the reopening <laughs> at midnight and pick up on another woman's, another dude's girl and you won't get punched in the face. It's just that simple. There's a blessing for non-participation. Jesus, give us wisdom. We wanna run through the tape well. We, like Paul, wanna be able to say on our last day, I finished my course with joy. I've been faithful to what you called me to do. That's my hope. So empower us to do that. I pray that we would be a people that do not participate in the works of evil and realize the good seed that we're planting in that way. As the book of Galatians says, that when we're after the works of the flesh, it brings destruction. We don't want that. We wanna be after the things, the values of your spirit because we know that brings great blessing in our life. So give us wisdom even today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.